All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you again to open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. And the title of today's Bible study is When All is Said and Done. And if you can, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 49. And we'll be reading and covering the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, he dares, who dares, rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes." His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall be a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Ishakar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, and so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor." Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shoot at him, and harassed him severely. And yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. 
Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them, and he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, to the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Please be seated. When I was in college, I re remember distinctly a song written and sung by Jeff Moore. And the song was called, When All is Said and Done. And the lyrics of the first verse are as follows. When the music fades into the past, when the days of life are through, what will be remembered of where I've come when all is said and done? Will they say I loved my family, that I was a faithful friend, that I lived to tell of God's own son when all is said and done? And in today's Bible study, we will examine now the end of the life of Jacob. And we get to surmise his life when all is said and done. And so if you have your Bibles, stay with me here in Genesis 49. And we're going to divide this chapter, a rather lengthy chapter, into four sections. So the first section we'll read about Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. In the second section from verse eight to 12, perhaps the most important part of today's chapter, we will see Messiah promised through Judah. Then in the third section, we'll cover the eight other brothers. And then finally in verse 28 to 33, we will look more closely at Jacob's death. So at the start of Genesis chapter 49, this is now perhaps the final day, the final week of Jacob's life. And so it says in verse one that Jacob, he called his sons and he said three things. Gather yourself together. That is, come near to me, gather around me. Second, he says, assemble and listen. And this has the notion that you are to arrange yourself for the purpose of drawing attention to me. And then third, he says, listen. Listen carefully. 
listen to what I am about to say. And he says in verse 1, the reason to do all this, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So Joseph here, or Jacob, excuse me, Jacob is about to disclose to his sons special revelation. This is partly a blessing, but it's more than that. This is special revelation that includes foretelling the future, God's plan for their family. When we had studied the life of Joseph, and we started back in Genesis 37, I had told you that it was obligatory for Joseph to disclose the content of his dreams, his two dreams to his brothers, to his father, because he understood it was a divine dream, it was divine special revelation. Jacob is about to pronounce a very important piece of special revelation directly from God to his 12 sons. Now, the narrator or the person, presumably Moses, who writes the book of Genesis, makes a very distinct change in verse 3 to 27. For most of our study in the book of Genesis, it is written as narrative. It is written as prose. But here, in the next 25 verses, he switches to Hebrew poetry. And when there's poetry that's written, it's very different. One of the things that's different about Hebrew poetry is there's a lot of imagery. There are a lot of symbols that are given. And I don't think we're going to be able to take time and energy to interpret or try to interpret every single symbol that is delineated in this prophecy, but hopefully we'll still be able to gain a very good, solid, high grasp understanding of this text. So let's start with the first son, Reuben, in verse 3 and 4. And Jacob first starts by acknowledging that, Reuben, you are my first son. You are my firstborn, first fruits of my strength. And your, your position should have been to be preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But that shall not be your position. And he pronounces a malediction, almost like a curse, because he says that you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, you went up to my couch. You may recall that back in Genesis 35, so this is before Joseph was 17 and was sold into slavery. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, it reads that while Israel lived in Canaan, in that land, Reuben went up and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And so the notion most people believe that the firstborn son Reuben has sexual relations with his father's concubine for the purpose of prematurely usurping the position of firstborn. He wanted to be the leader of the family. And perhaps he saw already that, that Jacob was already favoring Joseph, that it didn't seem like it was clear that he was going to take 
or be offered that position. And so in his impatience, he wanted to, on his own, take up that position as preeminent as the family leader in their household. And so for this, even though you would think that Jacob may have forgiven him, the consequences remained. He says, you will not, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Well, let's look at the next two sons, Simeon and Levi in verse five to seven. And the condemnation does not stop with Reuben. So with Simeon and Levi, Jacob says, you are brothers, but you are weapons of violence using your swords. We had touched upon this at least a few times in the last month or two, but let me just read the account in Genesis 34, verse 25 to 29. It says that on the third day, when they, these were the Shechemites, were sore because they had circumcised themselves for the purpose of wanting to intermarry with Jacob's family. So on the third day, when the Shechemites were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. And they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. And the consequence of that act was that Jacob became a pariah throughout the community of Canaan because his children had just mass murdered an entire village of people. Jacob here pronounces judgment on his two sons. And he says in verse seven, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And sure enough, as we read in the Old Testament, this prophecy is fulfilled. So first, uh, as it relates to Simeon, Simeon, when the Israelites conquer the land of Canaan through the leadership of Joshua, if you look at your back of your Bibles, if some of you have maps, you'll notice that Simeon has a small piece of territory and it's completely surrounded by the territory of Judah, all right? So imagine you're a city, but you're surrounded by another entire city. So that was the, the portion of territory that Simeon would be given. And it even says in Joshua chapter 19, the second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And what happens to the tribe of Levi? Well, we know later that Levi will be designated as the priestly tribe. Levi, the, the tribe of Levi, they, they don't even receive any territory of their own. In fact, all they received were these land tracts of 48 cities that were scattered about. And you can read more about that in Numbers chapter 18, 35, and Joshua chapter 21. Jacob here is pronouncing judgment first to Reuben 
You are not firstborn. You've lost your birthright. And to Simeon and Levi, you'll still get something, but compared to your brothers, your inheritance will be quite a bit less. And I think an application we can take from us from this today is that unbelievers and especially believers, our sins can be forgiven, but our sins will still have long-lasting consequences, even to future generations. It shouldn't be a sense of fear that we might lose our salvation, that we lose our positional standing with Christ and with our Heavenly Father. We know that once Christ paid for our sins, when we place our complete trust in him as Lord and Savior, that as far as the East is from the West, so far are our sins removed from us, both the penalty and, and the power of sin. But it still has consequences. So we see here first what Jacob prophesies regarding Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Second, and we're going to spend most of our remaining time on this second section. In verse 8 to 12, we're going to look at Messiah promised through Judah. Maybe I'm just using my imagination. But I think at this point, Judah must have been petrified. <laughs> he had heard son number one, judgment, condemnation, malediction to number two, number three. And here's Judah. Remember what Judah did. Judah was the one who finally led the brothers to sell Joseph to slavery to Egypt. Judah was the prodigal son in Genesis 38. He abandoned his father, his brothers, to live an independent life on his own. In fact, God was so displeased with him and his family that God struck dead his firstborn son, God struck dead his secondborn son, but in God's mercy, somehow God spared his third son, and God even spared Judah when he committed sin with Tamar. There should be a sense of expectation from Judah that he's going to receive something similar to what the first three brothers, the three, first three older brothers has received. But yet in God's grace and mercy, he gives Judah perhaps the ultimate blessing, the promise of Messiah. Let's look down at verse eight. There are four things we can see here in these verses that God promises to Judah through the words of Jacob. Number one, in verse eight, praise is promised. Praise is promised. Look at verse eight. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall fall, uh, shall be on the neck of your enemies, meaning that you will have vic victory over your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Joseph did receive the double portion. We learned about that last time when, jo when Jacob had blessed Joseph's two sons and elevated them to sons. But here we actually see that Jacob is designating Judah as the son that will have the position of authority. This is actually not bestowed onto Joseph, 
but to Judah. He is not going to say that all my sons are going to bow down continually to Joseph, even as second in charge of Egypt. But here in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you, they shall bow down before you. But not only is praise promised, second, we'll see here that power is promised. Power is promised. Jacob uses the imagery of a lion. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub, and he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? A lion, during the time of the ancient Near East, was considered the most powerful of all carnivores in the area of Palestine and in Egypt and even in Africa. As we read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are several stories that you and I should remember that allude to lions. Daniel in the lion's den. We recall that I think it was Samson as well as David as being described that they were able to overcome a lion and that was a sign of their strength and their abilities. Lions weren't always a symbol of victory, although they could be. They were sometimes used as symbols of wickedness. And you remember in 1 Peter, Peter even compares Satan as, as a lion. But the imagery, the symbolism of lion is clear. A lion is a symbol of dominance, of power. And interesting, in verse 9 alone, there are seven Hebrew words that can be used to be translated lion. And three of them occur in this verse. The first word is translated lion's cub. And actually, the, the word refers to the young of a wild animal. Six times in, in scripture, it's used to refer to a lion. Once, it's actually of a jackal. So the first word is lion's cub. The second word is lion in the ESV. He crouched as a lion. And that Hebrew word, uh, aria, is used 46 times, and it is the most common word used for lion. And scholars believe that this was the Hebrew term for an African lion. So I guess the, the, the Hebrews had different names for different types of lions. And so, so, so lion was used most commonly to refer to an African lion. And the third word, la vie, is what we see translated as a lionist. I want to make it clear because when we read the English translation, it may not seem obvious. The term for lioness is not the term for female lion. La vie is not the feminine version of uh, aria. La vie is actually another technical term for lion, and it's a term for an Asiatic lion, or a lion, or a species, apparently, that's native to Asia. So this third term is not dis distinguishing gender, but it's just another term used for lion. So Jacob is very purposeful when he describes Judah as a lion. Now think with me, if you were to try to articulate something to someone, 
if you were to rack your brain and come up with three synonyms for the same concept, it probably shows you, you either had some forethought or you wanted to emphasize something. And so this description of Judah as a lion's cub, a lion, as a lioness, is certainly not accidental. And in fact, as you and I read further on in the Old Testament, there are many future prophecies that allude to what Jacob just stated here in verse 9. Let's fast forward to the prophet Balaam. Do the kids remember? Do you remember the story of the prophet Balaam? So we read about the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers. You just need to remember that Balaam was a prophet. He wasn't a very obedient prophet. He was the one that had the donkey. You might remember the story of the talking donkey. He was riding his donkey. He was going to meet Balak, the king of Amorite, and God didn't really want him to do that, but gave him permission to do that. And so the, the donkey had stopped, and, and Balaam was so mad that he said, if I had a sword, you know, I might kill my donkey, because the donkey said, hey, I, 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 I'm not moving, and it would veer to the side of the road. Well, it turns out, obviously, that there was an angel that was in front of the donkey that Balaam couldn't see. Well, Balaam finally met Balak, and so Balak was king of, uh, of the Amorites. And, and Balak was deathly afraid of the people of Israel. He had heard of the Exodus. He had heard of these hundreds of thousands of Hebrews marching and approaching the land of Canaan. And so he calls Balaam to him and says, I will do whatever you want. I'll build altars to your God but what I want you to do is I want you to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel and the people of Judah. But Balaam, even though he was willing to give prophecy for money or be a prophet for hire, he did make a commitment to God that he could not speak except what God would, do, what would reveal to him. And in his second oracle to Balak, in Numbers chapter 23, he, he says, or the, the writer writes, that God brought them out of Egypt. This is the Israelites. And indeed, the people will rise up like a lionist. And like a lion raises himself up, they will not lie down until they eat their prey and drink the blood of the slain. So what Balaam is telling Balak is that, yes, God brought these Israelites out of Egypt but they are going to rise up like a lionist, like a lion. And they're going to eat their prey. And they're going to drink the blood of the slain. Of course, Balak was infuriated by this because he had hired Balaam to pronounce a curse. And what he does is gives blessing to the people of Israel. And so he says, all right, I want another prophecy. And so I think they continue with their altars, preparing them. And then Balaam gives a third oracle in Numbers chapter 24. And he says almost the identical thing. God brought these Israelites out of Egypt. They crouch and they lie down like a lion. And as a lionist, who can stir him? Blessed is the one who blesses you and cursed is the one 
who curses you. So what Balaam is prophesizing, he is alluding to the imagery of Genesis 49, that God's people, they're like a lion. They're like a lionist. And they are maturing, and when they come, they are going to devour you and take ownership of all your land. We see here that God promises praise. God promises power. Thirdly, in verse 10, God promises Judah kingship. Kingship is promised. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Hebrew word that's translated scepter the most common use of this word is not a royal scepter. It's actually the main word, uh, shevet, it's used of a rod or a club. You may remember in Psalm 23, you know, the, the psalm about the good shepherd, when, when the psalmist writes, your rod and your staff, your rod is shevet. Most often, this word is actually used of a rod or a club, maybe a shepherd's crook, but occasionally it's used to distinguish royalty, kingship, the royal scepter. And I think most people will agree this is exactly what Jacob is talking about when he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So he's basically making a prophecy that there is going to be a kingship that is going to come through you, Judah, and through your seed. And he even goes so far as to say, this will continue until, the ESV uses the translation, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of peoples, multiple people groups. So what do we think of this prophecy? If you jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And remember, the first king of Israel was a Benjaminite, right? Saul. And so that doesn't seem to be according to plan, but it isn't until 2 Samuel 7 when Nathan prophesies concerning David. And he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and with the stripes of the Son of Man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, referring to David, as I took it from Saul, to whom I put away from before you. So what Nathan is prophesizing is that David, unlike Saul, is going to be made king, and I'm not unlike Saul, I'm not going to take my steadfast love. It will not depart from him. It will remain with him. In Psalm chapter 78, it's a psalm written by Asaph. It's quite interesting. Let me just read, beginning in verse 67. Asaph writes, He rejected the tent of Joseph. Do you hear that? He rejected, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves, 
And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, because David was a shepherd as well. And from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So Jacob is promising that through Judah will come a kingship, a kingship that is promised and it will not leave. So praise, power, kingship, and fourthly, prosperity. Prosperity. Look at verse 11 and 12. So the imagery here is that Jacob is saying, hey, you're going to bind your fold to the vine and your colts to the choice vine. So this may seem weird or like, what in the world does this mean? So typically, when you have an animal, like a donkey, and you're, and you're going to park your donkey, <laughs> you will usually park your donkey on some ordinary tree or an ordinary post. You're not going to tie your donkey on the choice vineyard because you know, if the donkey moves, it's going to rip out the choice vineyard. We live near Napa County, and I've been told that even though a vineyard can be quite large, that the most prized vines are, are their most precious property. And it's not that it's all the property. It's that there, there, there's maybe one area, maybe the soil is better or the species is matured. And so those vines have the most choice grapes that, that you're able to make perhaps one or a few cases of wine that are much more precious, more valuable, more costly than the rest of the vineyard. You don't want to tie a donkey onto that choice vine. But you see here, Judah is described as to be so prosperous that there are so many choice vines that if you have a donkey, you'll just tie your donkey onto the choice vine because it's so plentiful. In fact, so you, you see the imagery of a donkey. You also see the imagery of the vineyard. Look at verse 11 again. He washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, obviously, you would not wash your you know, undershirts in red wine. But the idea is that there is so much wine. It's as if it's water. It is so plentiful. You can do whatever you want with the wine because it is so commonplace. That is how prosperous you are going to be, Judah. And we know in some ways that this is figuratively answered when they enter the promised land. When they enter the promised land, we see this land of milk and honey. And so in many ways, the praise, the power, the kingship, and the prosperity have literal fulfillment. They have literal fulfillment as we go to the book of Numbers, the book of Joshua, 2 Samuel, the Old Testament. But at the same time, the fullness of this prophecy is in the Messiah. There are three main messianic promises in the book of Genesis. Three. The first is Genesis 3.15. You remember Genesis 3.15 after Adam and Eve fell and 
God was about to pronounce judgment, God told Satan in the presence of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Her offspring, her Sarah, is going to bruise your head. And that is the first promise of this coming Messiah. The second messianic promise is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And you remember the context of that. Abraham was asked by God to offer his one and only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice as an offering of worship. And Abraham was willing, obeyed, and at the very last second, it seems, that God provided another sacrifice, that ram that was stuck in the thicket. And so afterwards, speaking to Abraham, God says, and in your offspring, your Sarah, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That doesn't have any literal fulfillment that can occur in the Old Testament. This promise can only be fulfilled in the promised Messiah. And the third, and perhaps the most vivid messianic promise in the book of Genesis, is here. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And let's go back to this, because many commentators believe that this is perhaps the most difficult verse to translate and interpret in perhaps the entire Old Testament. And let me explain. So in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The ESV says, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There are at least four ways, actually many more, there are, but there are at least four ways you can try to interpret the third line of verse 10. So the ESV, as well as the new Revised Standard Version, translates it as until tribute comes to him. Another alternative is what the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard, they translate this until Shiloh comes. And the word Shiloh is only used once and in this way in the entire Old Testament. There is no precedent. And there are some people, including the translators of the King James, the translators of the New American Standard, they look at, at Shiloh as a unique name for Messiah. And so they, 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 they would say, if you read it again, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, until Messiah comes. Now the NIV, as well as people, other people, they translate the third line as until he to whom it belongs comes. So they don't translate Shiloh as a proper noun for Messiah. But the, the, the meaning has something to the sense that someone is going to come and someone's going to come where something very important 
uh, that belongs to him will arrive to him. The ESV translators translate it as tribute, but something, all right? We can't, be, we can't specify until him to whom it belongs comes. And a fourth common interpretation or translation is until he comes to Shiloh. So Shiloh is a proper noun, but it is a place. Perhaps the place where the Ark of the Covenant was later to be, as we read further in the Old Testament. But however you and I come to try to interpret this third line, there is one unifying message. And the unifying message is this, that the royal scepter and the ruler's staff that is symbolic of royal kingship, it will remain in Judah until the Messiah comes. There is no doubt that Genesis 49.10 is ultimately talking about the promised Messiah. I am again in awe when I read the fourth line. To him, the Messiah shall be the obedience of the peoples. And I think the word choice is significant. There is implication of multiple people groups. There's implication that this is not just for you, your tribe, or even our family, but for all peoples. Back in Genesis 22, all the nations will be blessed by your Sarah. Let's walk through this further down the Old Testament. So in Isaiah chapter 11, so now the prophets are now prophesying in, in 700 BC. Isaiah says, as he describes the promised Messiah, he says that the promised Messiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah, who lived at around the same time as Isaiah, Micah says, Oh, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel from the ancient of days. There's more and more revelation. This promised Messiah is going to come through the line of Jesse. It's going to come from Bethlehem, which is a city in the territory of Judah. We know Bethlehem is where David is from. But then all of a sudden, we'll, we'll see that there's a big detour that takes place. Because King David was great. Solomon, eh, so-so. And then we've got the divided kingdom. And sure enough, a lot of the kings of Judah were pretty good. But after Josiah, everything goes downhill. And Jeremiah, through God, writes an epitaph to Jehoiachin. And he says in Je Je Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, Jeremiah writes, Write this man down as childless. So is he referring to King Jehoiachin? A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So do you understand the significance of this prophecy by Jeremiah? What Jeremiah is saying is that, hey, Jehoiachin, you are so bad. God is judging us and 
your, your offspring, there will be no more kings of Judah that come through you. The line is over. But then you look back at 49, and how could it be over? Because uh, the, the king, the royal scepter, is supposed to stay with Judah until Messiah comes. Flip with me to Ezekiel chapter 19. We're going to do a little bit more flipping, but I think it's to our benefit. In Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel is also pronouncing lamentation, coming judgment to the people of Israel. And in Ezekiel 19, he borrows almost all of the symbols that Jacob uses in Genesis 49. Beginning in verse 1, And you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness? Among lions she crouched? In the midst of young lions she reared her cubs? And she brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion? Learned to catch prey, he devoured men? The nations heard about him, and he was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. But look, look down at verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in the vineyards, planted by the water, fruitful. Verse 11. Its strong stems became rulers, scepters. But look at verse 12. But the vine was plucked out in fury, cast down to the ground, the east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off, withered. As for the strong stem, fire consumed it. It's planted in the wilderness, dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. What is Ezekiel saying here? Israel, Judah, you used to be a lion. You used to be the choice vine but not anymore. You are going to be taken away to captivity and there will be no scepter for ruling. You're going to be dried out in a dry and thirsty land. There is some glimmers of hope, right? If you look as you get towards Haggai, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there's an interesting prophecy. Don't worry, we won't go over all the prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ, but in Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah writes, you know, rejoice greatly. You guys have been back. You know, you've gone back to the land. You've, you've built the temple, the city walls. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foe of a donkey. Same imagery as Genesis 49. Now, during this time, if you were a king, by the time of Zechariah, and certainly by the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, kings came in on horses. They came in in a chariot. They don't come in on a donkey. And the promised Messiah comes. He did come from the stump of Jesse, the royal line of David, from the tribe of Judah, in Bethlehem. 
And he did not come from the offspring of Jehoiachin. In the Gospels, there are two genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke. Joseph was of the line of Jehoiachin. He was the legal descendant of the royal line of Judah, David. He was the offspring of Jehoiachin. Mary, however, was not an offspring of Jehoiachin. Her connection to the royal line was through Solomon. The virgin birth and the immaculate conception, even that was a way of fulfilling the promise. He had the legal standing of being in the royal line, but he was not the physical offspring of Jehoiachin. So God fulfills his promises here in these five verses, literally, in many senses, through the people of Judah, through the tribe of Judah. But especially verse 10, the full fulfillment is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for the sake of time, let's just quickly gloss through the other eight brothers. So back to Genesis chapter 49, we get now Ishakar and Zebulun. And now as you look at the order, you have to picture that the sons had distributed themselves not in necessarily in birth order, but groupings of their mother. Because Ishakar and Zebulun were full brothers of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And the one comment I would make about Ishakar and Zebulun is that Zebulun is the only tribe here that's given some description of where their territory may be located. Their territory is actually not right abutting to the Mediterranean Sea. But Ishakar and Zebulun have small areas of territory just west of the Sea of Galilee. And many think that at least several of Jesus' 12 disciples, 12 apostles, were from the tribe of Ishakar and Zebulun. And then afterwards, uh, in verse 16 to 21, we see Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, I think this is also significant because Dan, Ash, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali were born from the two handmaidens. They were not sons of Rachel. They were not sons of Leah. And they probably understood previous precedent. You remember Abraham. His first son that he fathered was Ishmael. But Ishmael was sent away. We read in the book of Genesis, Ishmael still became great. He was like father of 12 princes but he was sent away when it came to inheritance and the covenant promises. After Sarah dies, Abraham actually remarries, right? Remarries with Keturah, and I believe had at least six sons through Keturah. But the book of Genesis reads that the inheritance still all went to Isaac. It wasn't distributed six ways or seven ways. Uh, the the, the sons that were not the sons of Sarah 
were not given equal inheritance and position. But we see here that Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, they did receive a full inheritance, that they were part of the family. I could just imagine the four of them there. They'd been at the back of the line the whole time. Remember when Jacob was approaching Israel, or Esau? Maybe that was the time they went in the, the front of the line <laughs> in case Esau was going to get mad and, 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 and attack them. But otherwise, they were at the back of the line. And for Jacob to utter these words that I am treating you like all the other sons, you get equal position, what a source of comfort that must have been to them. I'll make one other comment. So Dan, the tribe of Dan, if we read further in the Old Testament, was one of the first tribes that turned away from God to false idols. One of the most prominent descendants of Dan is, is Samson. I guess he had an okay ending, but Samson wasn't the consummate model of faith. But Dan, as you look in Old Testament history, was not one of the better tribes. And I think it's, it's quite telling that he pauses. This is Jacob in verse 18. And he just says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He pauses. Somehow, the way is description that Dan may not turn out that great, but it comes to his mind, it makes me long all the more for salvation, for coming Messiah. Well, let's look quickly at Joseph and Benjamin. And for the sake of time, the only thing I want to highlight about Joseph is that Joseph receives one of the highest commendations from Jacob in this entire chapter. But his commendation was primarily a commendation on God. Let's look at verse 24, second half of 24. Jacob says, by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the second allusion to God being shepherd, the rock or the stone of Israel. The way that Jacob is commending Joseph He's basically looking at Joseph, and he's just telling Joseph, what a great God we have. It makes me think that perhaps one of the greatest commendations you can receive is if someone came up to you, and because either they were blessed by you, encouraged by you, that they would go up to you, and because of their thoughts of you, they just utter, what a great God we have. That's basically what Jacob is saying here. He does give some direct commendation to Joseph, but his main commendation is worship and acknowledgement of God. Well, let's jump to the final section here, Jacob's death. Jacob's death. So beginning in verse 28, it says that all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So if there wasn't any doubt that those four sons were not equal in status, here it is reiterated. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. The first time that 12 tribes is mentioned in scripture. And 
it continues, this is what their father had said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. And again, I find this also significant because I had just spent a bit of time highlighting on the displeasure that Jacob had of his first three sons. But the summary statement here is not he blessed nine and cursed three, but he blessed all 12. So again, the application to us, our sins may be forgiven, but there can still be long-lasting consequences. Jacob continues in verse 29, I am about to be gathered to my people. I think that this statement is significant because what Jacob is saying is that I am about to die and I am about to be gathered to my people. He believed that when he died, his spirit instant heaven with his ancestors. There's no holding ground, no purgatory. He was going to be gathered to his people. Some might say, oh, this is him just saying he, he's going to be gathered to his people. He's going to be buried with his family. But that's not true because in Genesis chapter 25, chronicling Ishmael's death, because Ishmael was not buried with Abraham nor Sarah at the caves of Machpelah. But in Genesis chapter 25, verse 17, it reads that Ishmael breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. You know, Jesus reaffirmed this reality in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. Jesus tells the story of the rich man, uh, the rich man um, and the poor man dying, the, the poor man Lazarus dying. And Jesus telling the story says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The poor man had no proper burial but his spirit was brought up by angels to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. Jacob spends a lot of time detailing where he wanted to be buried. And it reads the last verse, Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into his bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. Jacob if you try to put the timeline together, Jacob lived with Abraham. Their lives overlapped about 15 years. He was with his grandfather Abraham for about 15 years before Abraham died. He was probably with Isaac. Their lives overlapped for about 120 years, but 20 of those years at least, he was away from home in Haran. But when he dies, he will be gathered to be with his people forever. So in conclusion, I think there are three applications we can take from this. First, sin, even for us as believers, it has long-term consequences. We need to be instilling fear to help us to be all the more motivated to mortify sin. Second, our blessing is because of God's greatness. Jacob wasn't blessed because of how great he was. In many ways, he was no different than Esau. But we have learned from our study in the book of Genesis that it was because of God's grace and divine choice 
that Jacob was blessed. And then the third, which is what I want us to perhaps cling to the most, the third is that we want to live with eternity in mind. And I think more often than not, we as Christians, we probably think too little about eternity. We don't think about eternity enough. And the notion that we have this blessed hope that our final destination and reward awaits us in Abraham's bosom, it should change how we live today. I had shared with you the first verse to that song, When All Is Said and Done. There is a second verse, and it is as follows. Of how I long to see the hour when I would hear the trumpet sound so I can rise and see my Savior's face and see his smile and say, well done. You can forget my name and the songs I've sung, every rhyme and every tune, but remember the truth of Jesus' love when all is said and done, when all is said and done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of mercy and of grace. And you even showed mercy to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. You have that similar extension of loving grace to us. And I pray, Father, that we don't ever take lightly the blessings that we have because of what a great God you are. And Father, you could even help us understand how much Jacob longed to look forward to the Messiah in his final words. And yet we are perhaps even more blessed because we already now know the reality of you sending your son to pour out your wrath and have your wrath satisfied by his death so that we don't have to be condemned but that we can be credited righteousness through the blood sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you will help each of us in this room that we live for eternity. And I pray that when all is said and done, that what will remain is what we have done, what we have shown as a signpost that will point to you and to your son. Father, I pray that You'll help us to live out this reality as we go into our lives today and this upcoming week. Thank you again for being in our midst. In your son's name that we pray, amen.